and welcome back to the Cincy Reformed Podcast. Pastor Zach here with you this week as uh, Pastor Brandon is doing some um, focus work on his uh, PhD dissertation this month. And I want to uh, speak with you this week about some things that have been in the news and to help us to think biblically about it. And that is, in particular, the land of Palestine, also called Canaan. I want us to ask the question today, what does the Bible teach us about the land of Israel? Of course, during these times, war has broken out. Hamas initiated a surprise attack on the nation of Israel and took hostages. Now Israel is returning attack on Hamas, and there is the real possibility that other nations from around the world will join in. And so it's worth examining what the Bible teaches us about the land of Palestine, also called Canaan or the Holy Land, since there could be unbiblical ways of Christians thinking and acting with respect to this conflict. I'm not going to be weighing in on the politics of the matter so much, although it would be good for knowledgeable Christians to speak to the matter, but my goal in this episode is for Christians to think biblically and theologically about the land that Scripture calls Canaan in order that the Bible informs our view more than our favorite news channel or online influencer. Let's begin with the story of Abraham. In Genesis 12, the Lord called Abram to leave his homeland in the east and to go west to the land that God would give to him and his descendants. In this, there were some very obvious obstacles to God's plan. The land was already occupied by a mighty people, the Canaanites, who consisted of various tribes. Not only that, but Abraham didn't even have one descendant. His wife was barren much less have many descendants that could then inherit the land. Yet God had Abram walk through the land and pledged, To your offspring I will give this land. That is the origin of that land promise. The basic story then goes like this. Abraham's descendants through Isaac and then Jacob eventually become a great multitude. And God overthrew the Canaanites and gave the Israelites this land as a beautiful and bountiful inheritance. This could be compared to how a husband may give his newlywed bride a gift of a new home, in which they will dwell together. The land of Canaan serves that role for God and his bride, the people Israel. The problem in the story is that Israel is an unfaithful bride. She commits spiritual adultery and incurs the wrath of her husband, the Lord God. And so, she is cast out of the land. The northern tribes first went into Assyrian exile, and later, the southern tribes went into Babylonian exile. In the end, the Lord himself ends up leaving the land behind, per the prophecy of Ezekiel. The bountiful estate they had inhabited together was abandoned, and became a desolate wilderness. Even when the Jews returned to the land from Babylon, it was anticlimactic. The rebuilt temple wasn't as glorious, and the land wasn't as bountiful and fruitful. The blessing of God wasn't upon them as it once was. Ultimately, this was because God was no longer dwelling in the land with them. Israel had to wait a few hundred years for her bridegroom to return to the land. And when that day finally arrived, 
and God came to his bride in the person of Jesus Christ, she attacked him and killed him. But she did not kill him before he pronounced woes and curses upon the temple, the city of Jerusalem, and the overall land of Canaan. Represented by his cursing of a barren fig tree, Israel would endure the Lord's covenant curse because she had not produced the fruits of good works. God's covenant people would no longer be identified with the nation of Israel. The old covenant epoch was finished, and with it, the special role for the land of Canaan also came to an end. This was formalized in the year 70 AD, as Titus brought an end to the temple, the city of Jerusalem, and to the nation itself. In summary, the land of Canaan served as the land inheritance for the nation of Israel during the Old Covenant epoch. With that epoch now finished, that land is no longer holy to the Lord, and neither is that nation or ethnic people. We might ascribe special status to Palestine from an historical perspective, but the true and living God is no longer bound to that land by way of covenant. While it may be special to us due to past events, it is no longer holy to the Lord. Well, having considered the land from the standpoint of the biblical narrative, I would now like to consider its theological purpose. Let's begin by looking backward and then forward. I say that we should begin by looking backward because Canaan is not actually the beginning of Holy Land thinking. Canaan is in the same general vicinity as the Holy Land of Eden and the sanctuary that was in the midst of the Holy Land, the Garden. I think it's quite clear that Eden was a broader Holy Land that included the great river that divided into four, the Tigris, the Euphrates, the Gihon, and the Pishon. Within that Holy Land was a garden temple, a sanctuary, perched on a mountaintop, per Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. The land of Eden served as the primal Holy Land, in God's creative work week, he had formed it, filled it, and named its inhabitants, making Eden a fruitful and bountiful holy land. But God had also created image bearers, who were appointed to follow in his footsteps. He commanded them, man and woman, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. God's work week was the paradigm for them to follow. Through their labors, the beautiful and bountiful Holy Land would spread and eventually encompass the whole earth. When God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham, we were supposed to look backward and remember the original Holy Land, Eden, and its garden sanctuary. This is why the land of Canaan was compared to Eden. For example, in Genesis 13, Abram and Lot were separating from one another. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere 
like the garden of the Lord. Canaan served as an echo of the original paradise. The prophet Joel describes the arrival of divine wrath and curse as bringing change to the land. Whereas it was formerly like the Garden of Eden, Joel tells us that God's curse made it into a desolate wilderness. But the Old Testament does not only look back to the Garden of Eden, as it looks forward in hopeful expectation to redemption in Christ, it speaks once again of the land becoming like the garden. For example, when Isaiah speaks of Israel's coming redemption, in chapter 51, verse 3, he speaks of the land of Canaan becoming like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. In Ezekiel 36, we read, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Of course, the book of Revelation also uses Edenic language to describe the new creation, the new heavens and new earth. There are rivers flowing, the river of life. Precious metals are all over the place, gold, gemstones, and of course the tree of life is everywhere along the banks of the river. The prophecies are fulfilled with the arrival of the new heavens and new earth at the return of Jesus Christ. In other words, the land of Canaan always served a greater purpose, a cosmic purpose. It reminds us of the pre-fall state before sin entered the world, and it depicts the eternal inheritance for God's people, the new heavens and the new earth. When Israel entered the land under the old covenant, we are given a picture of how we will inherit the new heavens and new earth one day. When Israel was cast out of the Holy Land into exile due to the curse, we are given a picture of how Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence due to their sin. We must be holy to dwell in God's presence. When the land of Canaan went from looking like the Garden of the Lord to becoming a desolate wilderness, we learn how sin incurs the curse of death, not life. The land of Canaan itself was never the main event or the main message, and it is not our hope. The land of Canaan was always a symbol of something far greater, the new heavens and the new earth. God's entire creation overwhelmed with glory. On the last day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, not just a small piece of land in the Middle East. But some people might struggle with this because the land is so prominent within the Old Testament. Isn't it still the Holy Land? Isn't it still important in God's plans? Consider what Paul says in Romans 4. He is speaking about God's promise to Abraham. He tells us that God's promise to Abraham was always about something much bigger. Bigger than Jews dwelling in Palestine. It was always about Jews and Gentiles 
finding the same righteousness through faith, not through works. And in chapter 4, verse 13 of Romans, Paul tells us that those believing Jews and Gentiles would inherit the world, not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. This is the blessing given to the Abrahamic people. You see, Paul recognized that the land of Canaan always represented something greater, the cosmos, the world. When God promised Abraham the land, he was using a symbol to promise him the new creation, not a relatively small piece of land in the Middle East. But Pastor Zach, aren't you just turning the biblical story into an allegory? How can we read this into the Abrahamic promises and covenant? God promised Canaan. Well, I would respond by pointing out that Abraham himself understood what I am talking about. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham recognized the symbolic function of Canaan. It was a token of something bigger and better and heavenly. Hebrews 11.10 tells us that Abraham, as he was a pilgrim in Canaan, was, quote, looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In verse 16, Hebrews tells us that Abraham desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. While this consideration of the land of Canaan and its place within the biblical narrative will not answer all our questions concerning international politics and warfare, it does help Christians recognize that Palestine is no longer holy to the Lord. If Christians refer to it as the Holy Land, it must be understood to be a manner of speaking, not that it is still today what it once was. It has always been God's plan to dwell with his people inside a glorified creation. Old Covenant Canaan, when it was bountiful, reminds us of our pre-fall origins. When it was destroyed under God's wrath, it teaches us that our sin incurs death. And the prophets tell us that God's paradise purpose has not been thwarted, but through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God will accomplish this everlasting glory and bring his Abrahamic people, believing Jews and believing Gentiles, into the new heavens and the new earth, where they will dwell with their Lord forever and ever. Well, I hope this consideration of the biblical place of the land of Canaan and its purpose has been helpful to you. This is an episode of the Cincy Reformed Podcast, sponsored by Westside Reformed Church. Please check out our other episodes at cincyreformed.org, and check out our church at westsidereformed.org. If you are in the northern Kentucky area, we'd also encourage you to check out the new church plant we are launching that Pastor Brandon is leading, Christ Reformed Church of Northern Kentucky. Thanks so much for joining us this week. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.